Welcome to Seeking Christ in the Scriptures. This is a podcast for anyone who wants to go deeper in the Scripture, but just isn't sure how to go about it. We're here to help you think, live, and love biblically, while never losing sight of the real purpose of Scripture, to show the glories of Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Matthew Tilly, and you're listening to the very first episode of this podcast. Welcome. This is a project that's been in my mind for for a very long time, to be honest with you. It's just never quite made it to the light of day. I have a window of opportunity right now in my life, so I thought I'd take advantage of it to see if I could um, get this idea of making a podcast, uh, get it out there and make a go of it and have it actually take off. Of course, there's uh, two parts for it to take off. Uh, One, I have to be able to produce this on a regular basis. And for another, there's got to be some folks out there that find this worth your time to, uh, to listen in. Time's gonna tell on both accounts, uh, but I hope you enjoy this. But the intent of the show here is to help Christians as they work through thinking and living and even loving according to the Bible. I think a lot of us, at least myself being one of these people who have grown up in a particular religious tradition and a lot of my thinking and, and living is influenced by that and, and rightly so, but I don't really want to live and love according to my tradition. I want to live and love according to scripture. I definitely don't want to live or love according to what the world tells me to do. And I think there are many of you like that as well. Now, let's be honest and fair about this. We all have our biases. We all have our context from which we come to the the study of scripture. So as we dig into this, we're going to have to give each other a little bit of grace as we dive in, because we're all going to come to some, some we're going to have some differences among us. But the driving force behind the study and the thinking that I want to do on this show is actually seen in the title, Seeking Christ in the Scripture. And that's a title that uh, means a lot to me because it's a thought that's anchored in something that Jesus said in John chapter 5 and verse 39. If you were to go to John 5, you would see that it starts out with Jesus healing the body of this man who's been sick, has been really uh, crippled, bedridden, for 38 years, not able to get out and do anything, um, and is just not able to go anywhere. But Jesus comes along and immediately heals this man, so he's able to literally pick up his bed and walk in a way that he's not been able to do for, like I said, over 38 years. But instead of people getting happy about this, here's a man whose misery has been cured. Instead of them being happy, there's some religious people there that get pretty upset with Jesus when he's healing this man, and particularly they're upset because he's healing him on the Sabbath day. And that interaction between the religious people and Jesus gets Jesus to talking and and really launching into a sermon that begins in the middle of the chapter, goes really through the end of the chapter. And the high watermark of that sermon, in my view at least, is verse 39. And Jesus tells them, he says, search the scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And he continues on in verse 40 and says to them, he kind of chastises them and says, and ye will not come to me that you might have life. He is talking here to people who knew their Bibles. They knew their Bibles like few people know them and knew them in that day, and very few people know them in this day today. I know they were only looking at the Old Testament because there wasn't a New Testament at that point, but The Old Testament, if you even look at your Christian Bible, it's a big chunk of scripture. It's the part that very few of us know much about. It's also, you have to understand, these people had studied the scripture from very small children. They'd made it their life's work 
not only to understand it, but even to see the connections between the passages and, and to really be able to, to, to understand it in a very in-depth way. And they held up God's word as very important and special and precious. But they had missed, and this is what Jesus was getting across to them, they had missed the key to unlocking and receiving all that God's word holds. Jesus is saying that all of scripture is ultimately a testimony, a, a proclamation of Jesus Christ. So if you miss Jesus, misunderstand Jesus, and reject Jesus, even worse, you've missed and rejected the whole point of the word of God. Because everything in the scripture from the beginning to the end all builds to Jesus, all points to Jesus, and finds its fulfillment in Jesus. So you have to see Jesus as the filter, the lens, the, the window through which to view everything that the Bible has to say. You, you can actually see it trace through the whole arc of the story of the Bible. He's the promise that's given in Genesis. He's the provision that's established in a people in the books of Moses. He's the fulfillment of the law. He's the ultimate king and the king of the ultimate kingdom that's put and start in a, started in a particular physical place in the historical books of the Old Testament. He's the one that the poets and the, the, the wise men and the, the prophets of the, of the Old Testament are pointing to, calling people to, warning people about, anticipating. He's the one that, that all of it's talking about. He's the point of the four Gospels. It's his story, ultimately, in the four Gospels. And he's the impetus for the works, the acts, if you will, of the church that are recorded in the book of the Acts, book of the Acts. He's also the one that's explained and applied in interesting and useful and practical ways in all the epistles. He's the one that's fully revealed in the Revelation, in that last book of the Bible, the Revelation of Jesus Christ. I think you have to understand that the Bible isn't ultimately a book of moral codes um, or advice on better living. Now, now, it does have moral codes in it. It does offer advice for a better life. But it is ultimately God's command to, or rather communication, excuse me, it's communication to mankind about how we can have life, how we can know him, and how we can live an eternal and abundant life. It's about something, and probably better put, a someone that is so much better than anything you could have imagined. I like the way the writer of Hebrews puts it in, in Hebrews chapter one, where he talks about how God, who at sundry times and diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, that God has been communicating for mankind to mankind from the beginning. But he says, it hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. And he's talking about, of course, Jesus says that's the ultimate communication from God to man the one who's been appointed heir of all things, by whom he made the world, who being the brightness of the glory of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the all things by the power of his word, when he hath by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So throughout the Bible, in every page. On, in every book and in every chapter, there's a little bit more revealed about Jesus. It's something called progressive revelation. The more that you read, the deeper you go into the scripture, the farther you go, the more you see about him. But you can't see it 
by ripping one page or even one book out of the Bible. You have to see the whole context together. But no matter where you go, the smallest increment to the largest component, you are seeing Jesus as the centerpiece of the man of revelation of man, uh, revelation of God to man. Best way I can illustrate this is uh, just to talk a minute about uh, my, my marriage. I have been married for 25 years. Uh, it'll be 25 years really this summer. And I've been married for that time to a wonderful woman named Vanessa. I have loved that woman for closing in on 30 years now. We've had our ups and downs. We've had fusses and fights. And uh, we've had, you know, certainly the, the kinds of uh, ill will and ill communication that I think any uh, marriage is going to have from the time to time. But if you were to look at the overall arc of our story, the communication between us has been about expressing love in different nuanced ways throughout the years. I was recently cleaning up my office here at home and reorganizing things and in the process ran across a letter that Vanessa had written to me um, 20 something years ago. We had been married maybe a year or so at that time. We had just, we were just about to have our first child. He wasn't quite born yet, uh, but he was just on, it was the, the letter made references to this child that was on the way. Um, but it was a moment in time and there were certain things that were talked about in that letter, none of your business about all of them, but I'll just tell you that there were certain things talked about that letter that, that brought me back to that moment in time. A lot of water has gone under the bridge since then. We've changed a lot since then. I would even argue we are very different people now than we were 20 something years ago. But the theme of our relationship that was evident in that letter, that was evident in the last conversation I've had with my wife, has never ever changed. There's one message and it was evident in that letter. And that message was in that letter, she loved me and she believed that I loved her. And I think you'd see the same thing from me, that I loved her and I believe she loves me. Now, if you look at that letter and compare it to something more recent, compare it to text messages that go between us, or if you were to eavesdrop on a conversation we had maybe three or four years ago, the exact words, the tone are going to change, the stories are going to change, uh, the issues of the moment are going to be different, but the one point, the main message is unchanged, and you should see and you should hear various aspects of our growing, maturing, deepening love for each other. Now, I tell you that just to give, give you a point of comparison to say that God's word is exactly like that. The only difference, or the main difference would be, of course, it's God, not human beings. But, but the other difference would be that the message isn't necessarily just love. Love is there, grace and other things are messages that are in there. But the centerpiece of that message is Jesus himself. And you, can, you should be able to see that all the way back to the beginning and definitely all the way through the, through the end. Now, while I want to look at different parts of the scripture in our time together, and I hope to point you to the Bible for some of the answers to questions and issues of life, I want to, and the reason I'm spending a little more time here in this introduction is to go ahead and get my biases out front and in front of you that the whole thing, I'm going to look to the Bible, absolutely, but I'm going, I'm assuming, I'm coming at it with this presupposition that the whole thing is about Jesus, and everything that the Word of God says connects us to it, points us to Jesus in some way as the, the Messiah, the anointed, the promised one. So each week, I'm going to give you three things. It's my intention to give you three things, at least, maybe some more, but this is definitely kind of the plan week to week. First, you can expect a little bit of an informal update from me. 
It's things I've got going on, what, I, what I'm doing, how God's working in my life. Now, most of the time, it won't be as long as this uh, introduction is today. Uh, for this first episode, I'm spending a little more time, as I said, to lay some important groundwork to help you know where things are going. Normally, this will be the shortest part of the podcast. The second part will be one of the longer sections, uh, which I'm going to do a little bit of a Bible study. Um, I don't know if there's probably a better term for it, but I think that's kind of the clearest thing that I'm going to do. I'm going to take a section of the Bible, usually at least a few chapters long, uh, maybe as short as a chapter or two, uh, but something we can look at over a couple of weeks or more, and we can study it sequentially together. Now, this is not likely to be, with some exceptions to be fair, but not likely to be a verse-by-verse analysis, partly because I don't have the time to do that in this podcast, but it's also there's some other resources out there that are for that, uh, that are good for that kind of purpose. Uh, I'm hopeful that you're listening to this, you're participating in a local church. If you're not, I would encourage you to do so. You're going to get that kind of study at some point, maybe in a Sunday school class, or maybe depending on how your, your pastor is uh, preaching um, in certain uh, ones of his services, sermons, this might be something that he's doing. But the point is there are other resources, and if not within your local church, definitely you can get this kind of um, verse-by-verse analysis in some other settings that are available out there. But I want to give you big picture themes, big messages of each of these sections that we're going to look at, and at least give you a practical application or two uh, for your Christian life. Now, the big goal of this portion of the show, this Bible study section, is ultimately to be equipping and inspiring you to do your own Bible study. I'm not going to have all the answers. I really am intending in this short window just to, to, to spark your thinking, to get you to thinking so that maybe you'll dig in a little bit deeper. And as I go along, I'm going to address, even if it's just in the show notes, which will be on my blog uh, that you can, you can look at if you'd like to at mjtilly.wordpress.com, uh, but I'll, I'll definitely be addressing in some long where along the way the, some of the study tools, some of the resources that I'm using. Uh, there'll be one that I'll highlight today, for example, but, but I don't think these, these should be hidden things. I think sometimes they're often uh, mysterious, like things, what is in your bookshelf? I think these are resources that every Christian who's interested in at least should be aware of, if you're willing to invest in them, you should know what they are so you can go find some of these good resources. A lot of them are free, and I'll make sure to highlight those for you. But my hope is that you're going to read and study along with me. Ideally, there'll be someone or a couple of you that may even want to share what you're learning. Uh, I'd love to have you on the show, and actually we could do an, an interview where I just ask you, what is it you're learning? And, and ideally, you're even showing me, hey, maybe this is something that I said, that Matthew, you said to, to sort of spark my thinking, but hey, I'm gonna, I, I went off in this other direction. Here's some new information that I uncovered. I'd love to hear that from you. I'd love to highlight that on the show. So let me know if you're interested in that. And, and third and finally, the third section of each show is I want to address practical cultural questions that real Christian people are facing in daily life. I want to give Bible answers for those kinds of questions. See, I, I genuinely believe, I genuinely believe that the Bible is sufficient, sufficient for every aspect of life and belief for sure, and practice. And, and I believe that the Bible has given us what we need for the answers that we need in our lives. So what we're going to do is going to put it to the test. Um, I'm not going to promise you that my answers are going to satisfy you. The fact is they probably won't. But just like the Bible study, I'm not intending to give you the final answer. I'm intending to give you some tools that you can then go and maybe dig in a little deeper. I do promise you this. While it may not satisfy you completely, I do 
promise to support my assertions from the word of God. And we're going to have to lean on the Holy Spirit's guidance from there to, to see if they are applicable to our lives, if we can take that and actually do something with that. But that's, that's the intent for the show. We want to seek Christ in the scriptures. We're going to do it through these three ways, and I hope that you enjoy it as we develop it week to week. For our inaugural Bible study, I want to take a look at the book of 1 Samuel. Ultimately, I would love to take the time and go through all of 1st and 2nd Samuel, um, just because it really talks about uh, the development of the kingdom of, the, of, of Israel, and would love to talk to you about that. But um, to, to go through that whole study would take us a long time, uh, definitely at least a year or two. Um, and, I, and I have been studying on 1st and 2nd Samuel for the last little bit as I was pastoring at McConnell Road Baptist Church in Greensboro. I did a, a couple of sermon series on the first part of 1st Samuel. And um, I intend to, over time, if, if this thing continues on, we'll, we'll cover more of it. But to be honest about it, my attention span, your attention span isn't quite that long on an episode-by-episode episode basis. So what I'm going to do is going to take some smaller discrete bites so that we can do a little bit of detailed analysis, but also get to some practical application without getting lost in a lot of the, the, the weeds, if you will. So we'll focus our attention, this beginning study, on the first seven chapters of 1 Samuel. Um, and for today's study, I'm just going to introduce those seven chapters to introduce the book of first and second books of first and second Samuel as a whole, but also the seven chapters in particular. And next week we'll get into the details of the individual chapters. And each week we'll probably cover one or two chapters um, in a story or a narrative like first um, uh, Samuel. Uh, you're going to have big chunks of scripture that you'll need to cover to get kind of the story. And that's what we'll be looking at. But uh, but right now I just want to start by talking about first and second Samuel generally. So what is the book really all about? Well, on one level, it's a history book. Uh, you're reading a preserved account of the ancient nation of Israel and how it was established in the land, the area called Palestine or the land of Canaan, uh, uh, as you may want to call it, uh, and, and how they transitioned from a more informal government to the rule of kings, a monarchy. But as we've said about the Bible, there's, there's, there's just more than the surface facts going on here. Ultimately, there's a message about who Jesus is and what Jesus does, and we want to get to that. We want to understand that. We certainly want to apply. We want to understand what's happening in the situation, but we want to get to the place that we understand what is it telling us about Jesus. So to get to that a little bit better, you have to understand the context of these historical accounts. So let's we'll start at the beginning. You're talking about the Israelite nation, Israelite people. These are the same people who could trace their lineage all the way back to a man named Abraham, you're introduced to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, it, it kind of seems like Abraham is coming out of nowhere, but he is clearly chosen by God as the, as the forefather of the, the children of Israel. And then through, the, through, the, through time, the rest of the book of Genesis, his family, of course, flourishes. He's got a good-sized family, uh, his, uh, his children and grandchildren and so on. Uh, but then a series of events happen that that family and uh, you actually find them in Egypt as the book of Exodus opens, and they're enslaved for 400 years. Now, as that book's name suggests, uh, they do exit 
or leave Egypt in a miraculous, miraculous way. You probably know the story of God parting the Red Sea for the children of Israel, something on the order of one to two million people are crossing over that sea on dry land because God holds back the water. Now, the, the nation then is journeying through the desert for about 40 years. And during that 40-year period, God's talking to the people. He's preparing the people. And he's doing this so that they can be setting up a kingdom in this promised land, Palestine, the land of Canaan, whatever you want to call that, but that area that he's got set aside for them. He's trying to prepare them so they can be civilized, honorable people. And you say, well, why is that important? Well, they've been enslaved for 400 years. That does something to someone physically, emotionally, mentally, even spiritually. And God knew that these people needed to be transformed from slaves to sons. And that process happens through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You can see that happening as God's preparing these people in that process. Then you get to the book of Joshua, and you're reading how these people, now somewhat prepared by God, arguably not fully prepared yet because they haven't fully embraced everything God's teaching them, but nonetheless, as prepared as they're going to be, they actually invade the area known as the Promised Land, the Canaan Land, Palestine. And they take this over, amazingly actually take this over from what had been a pretty rough place to hold. Uh, up to this point, it's been marked by uh, a lot of uh, divided kingdoms, small little, little kingdoms all over the place. And they come in and they take this over. Of course, then when they come in, there's about 12 tribes there and they divvy up the land to different tribal areas. So each of the tribes have their own sort of homeland, if you will. And as they do that, they get settled. They've not completely really got a lot of unity among them to speak of. Furthermore, there's still some strongholds of the people that they had uh, conquered, but there's still some of that there. And then, of course, there's also foreign kingdoms that uh, want to come in and invade as well, different attempts to control the land. All of that's described in the book of Judges. Now, as the book of Judges has a name that suggests something, there's a different kind of rule that's happening at that time, something called a judge. Um, these guys, uh, you know, people like Gideon, the guy who had 300 men who fought the big army and won, uh, or Samson, the big strong man who, you know, killed all those uh, Philistines and uh, uh, with, what was it, the jawbone of a donkey and things like that. So you probably know a couple of those names. They're put in place by God in part to militarily deal with some of these invaders like Midian and Syria when they attack, but also in part to spiritually prepare and help the people to call them back to the one true God. But that's all leading up to 1 Samuel. So historically, you end Judges, and then it goes right into 1 Samuel. That's where the, the timeline continues. And the key to understanding this transitionary moment from Judges to 1 Samuel is really the last verse of Judges, Judges chapter 21 and verse 25, where it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eye. And that's kind of a recurring theme in the book of Judges. And it really describes what exists, the world that exists at the opening of 1 Samuel. You see, you're, you're looking at a group of people who don't really have any real leader to speak of. They have no control over them except what their heart tells them to do. They literally do what they think is right. And at least as I know, and I imagine you do too from your own experience, if nothing else, I know that the human heart is full of lust and sin. And there is no way that that can go any way other than from bad to worse. 
James puts it this way. He says, every man is tempted when he is drawn away from his own, with his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So this is, this is universally true, that death comes because of sin, and sin comes because of what's in our heart, what we want to do, and we just do what we want to do. That is just going to be a bad, bad situation. But it's not just universally true, it is, but it actually shows up in first chap the first chapter of 1 Samuel. We'll talk about it in detail next week, but you'll see depravity, you're going to see destruction, you're going to see disgrace, all of this because of the do-your-own-thing lifestyle. And throughout the book of 1 Samuel, you're going to see this pattern, and even in the second Samuel, you see this pattern of, of, of being dealt with in one bad way after another. What happens in the first seven chapters is the priesthood is trying to deal with this do-your-own-thing life, and they fail. Then you see the prophet Samuel trying to deal with it, and he fails. You'll see how even they choose, the children of Israel choose a king, Saul, like the other nations. They see everybody around them saying, they've got a king. That may be the way to deal with this problem. Let's put that kind of kingdom in place. He fails. Then God has a plan for Israel to put an eternal throne, to put David on that throne, and David, a human being, fails Israel. What these successive failures do is ultimately point us to the need for a divine solution. Now, these, these failures are painful. They're painful to read. If you actually sympathize with the children of Israel as you're reading them, they're actually pretty painful. And can you imagine living through some of that? Some of you probably can. I know I can. I can look back to my life and see all the ways that I've done what I wanted to do and I have paid the price for it. And it's painful. But as I'm saying here, that, that this is ultimately to point the children of Israel and us, the modern reader, to that need for a divine solution, a divine answer to the problem of the people individually and the nation as a whole. And that problem, the, the solution to that problem is that leadership must come from the Lord. Now, you're going to see something that Robert Bell talks about in his book, The Theological Messages of the Old Testament. I'll actually show you that book here. This is a really good resource uh, for any serious Bible student. Um, I think for the Old Testament in particular, uh, it's a good biblical theology book. It's something that I had in one of my courses at seminary, really enjoyed it, um, and reference it quite a bit myself um, as I'm looking at the Old Testament. But one of the things that uh, Dr. Bell talks about in his book is that you're going to see the upending hand of God. This is this idea that what God does is he exalts the humble and he humbles the exalted. You're going to see this pop up again and again and again in this study. And the whole point of Samuel, both 1st and 2nd Samuel, is that God has to provide the leadership that we need. If not, we are going to suffer the consequences of poor and sinful leadership. That's going to show up in our homes. It's going to show up in our churches. It's going to show up in our communities. And it's going to show up in our nations. Now, I'm looking forward to this study, and I hope you'll join me next week as you look a little bit closer at chapter 1 and into chapter 2. Time to turn to your questions that need some Bible answers. 
This week, uh, the question I want to address is one that uh, kind of emerged from a survey that I put out to um, the Facebook community that I have, and I have a Facebook page for Seeking Christ in the Scriptures. would encourage you to join that, maybe join the discussion there. That might be a good way for you to interact with us there. But uh, I put a survey out to the small community that's there now, and uh, got, a, got some responses to that survey. And the one question that bubbled to the top of the, of the, of the list was, how can I find God's will for my life? Now, of all the questions that were on there, this is definitely one of the big, serious, broad questions. Um, and therefore, it's not going to have a, a simple answer. And definitely not a one-size-fits-most, or definitely not all answer. Uh, in fact, I'm actually in the middle of this uh, question myself. I mean, that's really where the idea of it originated from. Um, my situation is that I was pastoring a church in Greensboro. I've been there for just about three years. And I had to make a decision. I had to resign from that situation or resign from that church due to a situation that was outside of my control. Um, I did what I believe was best for my family, trying to protect my family from a, from a problem there and for the long-term health of my ministry. I thought that was the right thing to do. And, and I believe it was the right thing for the church. I believe that God has his hand on that church and that he's going to protect that. And he's going to make that church flourish and grow. And I pray that he does. But as much as I believe that what happened and the way that I went about things was what needed to be done, it still left me in a bit of a tailspin. What, what in the world am I going to do? So I'm actively wrestling with exactly how, when, and where I should serve the Lord. Um, how am I going to, what am I going to do next? What should I be doing? Uh, questions like, uh, should I be just working a job, full-time job until a pastorate pops up? Should I just sort of sit back on the pastorate and let that come to me? Or should I be more proactive seeking out a church? Um, I've also right now trying to decide about going a little deeper in my theological studies, uh, finishing out a seminary degree that I've been working on. Uh, should I just be content doing that for now? Uh, again, no easy, no quick answers to these questions, but the point is to give you a window into my, my thinking I'm dealing with this right now. How do I know what God's will is? And I imagine some of you are dealing with similar things. Um, and if not now, you have from time to time, and you likely will in the future. Certainly, if you're in that place where you're graduating from high school or you're, uh, you're in college and you're about to, to begin your adult life, uh, that sort of crossroads of life. And again, there are other, other unusual crossroad moments that you may find yourself at. So how can I find God's will for my life? So this is a very important and personal question to me. I hope it's helpful to you. So we want to look at what does the Bible say about it? Um, of course, the Bible is riddled with the concept of the will of God. You're going to find reference to it in the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, when he says there that, uh, that, you know, that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus wants God's will to be done. Paul describes his ministry as an apostle in a couple of the epistles, and he talks about that his ministry to be an apostle was something that was the will of God for him to do that. And there's a lot of references to my salvation, salvation as a concept, a general concept, as being something that's in the will of God. Uh, the one that I think of is Paul in Galatians 1 verse 4 saying that Jesus died for our sins, quote, according to the will of God and our Father. Uh, so there's a, there's a few things that are clearly identified as the will of God in the Bible. For one, the fact that you should be saved. That is God's will. Uh, Jesus says in John chapter 6, it is his will, God's will, that you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the, the work of the Father. That's something God wants you to do. 
in chapter 17 of John, Jesus talks about how it's the will that there be his will that there be unity among God's people. And these are just examples for the for for just for some examples about how um, these uh, how, how God's will is shown up in the Bible. But what the Bible doesn't give us direct answers for in terms of the will of God is what does that mean that I should do with my life? What should I do next? Not necessarily giving me that. Again, we know don't do sin. Clearly, that's God's will. But a lot of times we're not talking about a sinful thing and a non-sinful thing. Well, if that was the case, clearly go for the non-sinful thing every time. But often, particularly when you're talking about life decisions, you're looking at two things or three or four things that are all good ideas. They're not wrong. They're actually either morally neutral or maybe even morally positive for you to do them. So what do you do about those things? Well, I'm drawn to a passage in Romans, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This is potentially a very familiar passage to some of you, where Paul writes that he beseeches the brethren by the mercies of God that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, he says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And I think in this passage, you have the, as direct a clue to how to find God's will as I believe that there is in Scripture. So to understand that and to, to really get to it, I think we have to start right at the end, that, that last phrase where it says there that we may prove what is good, acceptable, and perfect and the will of God. The text is actually proposing an answer on how to get to the point where you can assess, you can evaluate, you can prove, to use the King James language there, what is good, acceptable, perfect. What is the, the, the suitable thing? What is it that we believe God wants for our lives? There's a way to get there. It proposes a way to get there. So what is that way? Well, there's a negative answer to that. We don't do that by being conformed to the world. It's not being conformed to the world. So we're not to take our cues from the prevailing wisdom of the age. Now, as I said, I think we generally know not to follow after things as we, that we see are sinful. Uh, lifestyles, attitudes, behaviors, uh, ways of living that we know that the Bible says are wrong and sinful. We should not do those. But I'm afraid, though, even though we know that, Modern Christians do tend to take a lot of their advice from the prevailing wisdom of the age. What I believe this text is telling us is that we're not to be looking around at the business world, not to be looking around at the religious sector, not to be looking at academia, not to look at the entertainment world, not to look at them as our examples, and not just to not look at them, but not even to look at them, even if they sound good. And there's a lot of things that are coming out of the, the popular or the, the, the prevailing culture of our age that kind of sounds good. It might even ring of truth because that's the way the devil works, is he wants to see truth in there, but then help us to miss the fact that he's got it laced with lies. But, but even if it sounds good, we should ignore it. And furthermore, even if the outcomes are good, and I think this is where a lot of believers get off track, where we look and say, well, that worked out for him or her, so I think I can try to go after because I really respect that person. He says not to be conformed to the age, not to be conformed to the world. Don't take your cues from the prevailing wisdom of the age. Instead, he says in that, that verse, he says, 
that I am to be uh, transformed by the renewing of my mind. I'm, gonna allow, I'm to yield or submit myself to God's transformation of my mind, to make my thinking, my, my outlook completely new, completely made new by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit's regenerating work, not only to save me, that's absolutely a major part of that, and if I'm not ever had that happen, him to make me a, a new creature, then I none of the rest of this matters, but once I believe in Jesus and he regenerates my, my mind and my heart, there's still a process of regeneration that goes on. We call it we call it uh, sanctification. It's that process over the course of my life where God changes my thinking, changes my walk, changes my talk. So I'm, instead of conforming my way, my, myself to the, the ways of the world, I'm to allow God to transform my mind so that I can see things properly. And that sounds great, right? Well, how do I do that? How do I allow him to transform my mind? Well, again, let's go all the way backwards. We kind of work from the bottom up on this. Go to verse one. And he says there that we are to give ourselves as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. In, in, a, in a phrase, we're to give everything over to God. I think this idea of a living sacrifice has images or pictures of the sacrifices of the Old Testament. You go back to Leviticus and you looked at that, that, that burnt offering in chapter one, and, and that offering is to put on the altar and it is to be completely consumed. Nothing is to be left because it's all given over to the Lord. And that's exactly what you're to do with yourself, your mind, everything that you think about, your body, all the things that you can do, your will, the desires that you have. Burn it all up. Give it all up. Uh, Jesus talks about uh, those that want to follow him. I think this is in Mark 8.34, where he says that if you're going to be a follower of me, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. This is what's talked about there. You literally have to give it all over to God. And certainly that itself is the will of God. I believe that is the will of God for every believer, that we, we deny ourselves and we follow after Jesus at all costs. But even better for the purposes of our question, what is God's will or how do I find God's will for my life? This is actually the biblical solution for determining which of the choices among the choices that are in front of you, which of those are God's will for you and your life. Now, you're probably thinking like I am, potentially. It sounds great and all, but you have no idea how messed up my life is, how much my situation feels just completely in disarray. So I'm clearly doing something wrong. And I'll go ahead and tell you, you probably are. You probably are doing something wrong. But there's another biblical assurance that I want to point you to. I'm not trying to beat you up. I'm actually trying to help you here. So let's go to this other biblical assurance. This is also in Romans. It's in chapter 8. And in verse 26, we're told that the Holy Spirit helps us out when we're too weak to do what we're supposed to do. This often shows up, in fact, in this context of Romans 8, 26, it's actually talking about my poor attempts at prayer. And I, I know that I have to admit to you that sometimes, especially in the last, oh, six, eight weeks, I've been in this place where I've been trying to pray, and I, and I just find myself saying, God, help me. God, help me. God, help me. And yeah, I could, should be more specific in my prayer, but my spirit and my soul just gets to that place where, as the Bible says, they're groanings which cannot be uttered. But in Romans 8, 26, the Holy Spirit is the one making intercession for us with groanings, which cannot be uttered. And in verse 27, Paul continues that he's the one searching the hearts, knowing what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. 
So it seems to me that the only possible way to know God's will for your life and for my life is to give everything over to God and trust him for the outcome. And when that doesn't feel like it's working, and I'll just promise you, at least from my own experience, I can give you that. Sometimes it's not going to feel like it's working. But when that doesn't feel like it's working, you're going to have to get on your knees and you're going to have to ask God, give me some direction, give me some guidance. And you're probably going to get to a point, if, not, if you're not there yet, you will get there soon, where you're not even going to know how to pray. The words won't even articulate properly because you're going to say, Lord, this feels too hard. This feels too much. But the Holy Spirit knows perfectly what the will of God is, and he will intercede for you on your behalf. So the overly simplistic but extremely biblical answer to the question, you're going to have to pray. You're going to have to watch God sort it out. Thank you so much for joining me on Seeking Christ in the Scriptures for our very first episode. I hope you found the whole show helpful and interesting on some level, and uh, at least some portion of it, if not the whole thing. Um, and if you did, if you found any part of this helpful, would you mind sharing it to somebody you know, maybe just sharing the whole podcast, sharing the Facebook page, sharing some component of it. I would really appreciate it if you wouldn't mind doing that. I think that'll be the best way, you helping me get the word out. I'll do some of my work as well, but if you can help me get the word out, I think it'll make this a productive Christ-honoring platform for sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. I hope you all have a good week. Please tune in each week for a new episode of Seeking Christ in the Scriptures.